The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, in for Joy Reid. We begin the readout tonight with new urgency in the fight against COVID, with the U.S. crossing the 35 million COVID-19 case milestone late Sunday. Today, the White House said 70 percent of all U.S. adults have had at least one vaccine dose, almost a month after President Biden's original goal of reaching that mark by July 4th. One of those vaccines went to Senator Lindsey Graham, who announced today that he tested positive for COVID. The senator added he is, quote, very glad he was vaccinated, saying his symptoms would otherwise be far worse. It's a message the public health community is desperate to get out, that the vaccine is highly effective, despite the fact that breakthrough infections can happen. They are, for one, very rare. According to data collected by NBC News, breakthrough infections in 38 states represent, and listen to this number, less than 0.08% of the 164 million plus people who've been fully vaccinated. And the number of cases, uh, the, the number of cases and deaths among the vaccinated is very small compared to the number among the unvaccinated, with the former Biden advisor on COVID-19 estimating that 98 to 99% of deaths are among the unvaccinated. The Delta variant, however, is much more transmissible and extremely dangerous, especially for the unvaccinated, which is why we are seeing those mask mandates pop up again. The San Francisco Bay Area has reinstated an indoor mask mandate. And Louisiana, a state that is running out of ICU beds as COVID cases surge, will be back under a statewide mask mandate starting Wednesday. The nation's leading infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, doesn't think we'll see a repeat of 2020. But he did share that things look grim in the months ahead. I don't think we're going to see lockdowns. I think we have enough of the percentage of people in the country, not enough to crush the outbreak, but I believe enough to not allow us to get into the situation we were in last winter. But things are going to get worse. We're looking to some pain and suffering in the future because we're seeing the cases go up. Joining me now is Dr. Kavita Patel, a physician and a former Obama White House Health Policy Director, and Dr. Peter Hotez, infectious disease specialist and co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Thank you both very much for being here. Dr. Patel, I'll start with you. And, and just to get your thoughts on the mask mandates that are popping back up, we just talked about San Francisco, the state of Louisiana. Um, um, the, the CDC recommending people wear masks indoors. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, Jonathan, good to be with you tonight. I, I fully support these and not even mandates. I would just say to me, it's, I would say universally, I know the CDC has really recommended indoor masking for places with substantial or high transmission. Jonathan, it's very hard to know to how to look up where you are and what your caseload is in your county. 
And it's just simpler to say, while we are all kind of going through this surge, and if you're in a place like Florida, Jonathan, it's the worst it's yeah. ever been than the first two waves, not as bad as the winter wave yet. So I'm fully supportive of it. What I'm scared of are the states like Florida, like Texas, that have gone out of their way to not allow for even schools right. to put in mask requirements. And right, Dr. Hotez, your thoughts on mask mandates, but also what Dr. Patel is talking about, what's happening in states like Florida, where the governor is going out of his way to prevent local officials from doing what they see is in the best interests of, of the people who live in their cities and towns. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jonathan. This is the scary part now. We are seeing a very worrisome surge across the southern states, and it's going in a giant shape of a U, going starting in Missouri, down to Arkansas and Louisiana, cutting across east into Florida, then going up into the Carolinas. And and it has a different flavor from the surge that we saw last summer. It's true that we have a lot more older Americans who are vaccinated, so the deaths are nothing like what we saw before. But what we're seeing in, in its place is lots and lots of young people getting sick and lots of hospitalizations for young people. And we're are even starting to see now pediatric intensive care unit admissions. Mm. I don't think this virus is selectively targeting kids. I just think pretty much anyone is not vaccinated is getting swept up in this. And the big worry is in August here in the South, schools start early. They start earlier right. than they do up in, in the North. And it's going to, I think this is really going to act as an accelerant for this epidemic. And and what I'm holding my breath about, given the fact that except for Louisiana, we don't have mask mandates. We certainly don't have vaccination mandates for COVID-19 vaccines. We have a very low number of adolescents vaccinated, the lowest in the country, fewer than 20% of adolescents are vaccinated in most southern states. Uh, this is a powder keg. And so I'm worried we're going to start seeing lots of pediatric hospitalizations and pediatric ICU admissions. And so that really worries me. And yet we are seeing um, there's a, a 70 percent increase in vaccination. I think this comes from um, Jeffrey Zients, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, who said that there's been a 70 percent increase in the last week. The average number of people getting vaccinated against COVID-19 after weeks of pleading with people to get vaccinated because the, the, the level of vaccination had sort of leveled out. Now we're seeing this spike in people getting vaccinated. Dr. Patel, is that because of people taking seriously all the reports of this, the surge because of the Delta variant? Well, yes, I think, Jonathan, almost everyone I've talked to has kind of come into my clinic recently to get vaccinated. They've all said, look, I know someone who was young and healthy and got COVID and is sick. They've all been kind of touched personally by it. To Dr. Hotez's point, there's just very little places for the virus to go except the unvaccinated. And it's going to be very smart and efficient at replicating in the unvaccinated. We're also seeing some of these breakthrough infections, which are catching people's attention. It's not undermining vaccine confidence, but even Senator Graham's experience, it could have been far worse if he were not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And so I do think we have an opportunity. Unfortunately, getting vaccinated today does not help with the you know straight upward slope that we're seeing of increases in cases. It'll save your life, but it's not going to prevent what is this kind of roller coaster of an epidemic and pandemic we're seeing throughout most mm -hmm. of the state.
And Dr. Hotez, there's a report out um, that uh, Germany, from Reuters today, Germany will in September just start to offer a booster shot against COVID-19. Do you think that that is something that is going to um, a decision that will be made here in the United States, that we the folks who have been vaccinated will need to get a booster shot? I, I think there's a high likelihood. It may not be a universal recommendation. It may start out with certain groups. We're already seeing mm. some data, although there's small studies on those on immunosuppressive therapy, um, bring up their levels of virus neutralizing antibody if they get a third immunization. Israel is now giving third immunizations to those over the age of 60. So I could imagine a scenario where, where, we, where we move forward with that. And later on, as other variants circulate, because we're doing a terrible job of vaccinating Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia, that could build in more resilience also through a third immunization. So I think we'll mm -hmm. eventually get there. It may come in stages. You know, I, I know I mentioned before, sort of triumphantly, you know, we're seeing a, an incredible spike in the number of people getting vaccinated. But then the dark side of this comes from a, a story in the New York Times on Sunday, where a survey of data from 10 states shows that about one million doses have gone to waste since the nation began administering COVID-19 vaccines in December. Much of the loss comes uh, as demand for inoculations plummeted. Dr. Patel, should we be worried that as people start to take getting vaccinated seriously and go out to get the vaccine, that we could end up seeing shortages because of the number of vaccines that, ha that have to be thrown out because they do ha have expiration dates? Yeah, Jonathan, nothing kills me more. I've had to throw away some of those doses, uh, and, and it literally breaks my heart every time that happens, because as Dr. Hotez knows, this could save a life everywhere here and in any other country. I'm not worried uh, whether or not it's just that we're gluttonous, or you could argue that we were really, really prepared with Operation Warp Speed to have these contracts and manufacturing arrangements in line. I'm actually not worried about running out of vaccines. What I am worried about is that the, the American public is probably going to have to deal with COVID for a while. And when I say a while, I don't mean days or weeks or months. It might be several years, and it's because we need to vaccinate the whole world. And I don't know how we can all adjust our lives to that. And we're going to have to do it, but we have to do it by getting vaccinated as quickly as possible. And then I do think we're going to have, whether they're boosters or a new set or series of vaccines in our future, that's what we're going to be dealing with. But it is our only way out of this. The message in all of this is get vaccinated. Dr. Kavita Patel, Dr. Peter Hotez, as always, thank you very much. As New York's governor urges businesses to turn away unvaccinated customers, Florida's governor is barring schools from mandating that children wear masks. This comes as the Sunshine State is grappling with a surge in cases and hospitalized COVID patients. Joining me now is Nikki Freed. Florida's Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services, who is running against incumbent Ron DeSantis for governor. Commissioner Freed, thank you very much for coming to the readout. Let me read a, a tweet that you put out, if I can find it here on my sheet. Yes, you, you put it out today. What are you waiting for? Nikki Freed says Governor, governor DeSantis needs it to issue an emergency order for COVID-19. Um, talk more about that. What would this emergency order do? The emergency order would allow us to pull down additional funds from the federal government uh, to increase our testing back here in the state of Florida, as well as more vaccination locations. Because right now we're seeing a surge, as you, your guests were just talking about in the earlier part of your show. And so right now that the problem is, is that our governor has put his head in the sand.
and has left the state of Florida, has abandoned us. And so we need him to start taking this very seriously. He stopped almost two months ago giving daily reporting numbers to the people of our state of where we are on the number of cases, the hospitalization. So this executive order would say, Floridians, Take this seriously. Please go out and get the vaccines. Here are the locations for the testing sites. Here is increased locations for the vaccinations. Um, but unfortunately, this governor is more pre- preoccupied uh, with running for president in 2024 and not taking this seriously. Well, Commissioner Freed, I mean, the thing that I find most outrageous is that the governor is making it impossible impossible for localities to impose or institute mask mandates in order to protect their own their own citizens. Is he basing that just on pure politics or on some kind on some science that we don't know about? You know, I, I think that the, the question it should be addressed like this. You know, it, it shouldn't be about mandating masks or not mandating masks. You know, last year we didn't have the tool in our shed of the vaccinations. We have it now. We need to be having bipartisan support of people across our state, across our country, coming together, Democrats, Republicans, independents, emphasizing how important it is to get the vaccines and to get it now. And so when he does things like this and flirts with anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, what he's doing is he's signaling to the people of our state, don't take this seriously. Don't follow the the science. Don't follow the experts. And that's the conversation that we need to be having. It's how we come together, re-message what needs to be going on right now here in the state of Florida to protect our kids. We know the numbers are increasing when it comes to hospitalization, not just uh, for 18 and above, but other under 18. And we also know this, that last year it was our local governments and our local different businesses and corporations and small businesses across the state that stood up and led when he had a hands-off approach. He flips out during crises. And so now he's handcuffed them to not be able to do what is right for their communities. Communities and counties all across the state and across the country are different. And that's why they have local elected officials to know what's right for their own specific community. And he's handcuffed them to not be able to protect Mm. their own communities. Um, Commissioner Freed, we have less than a minute left, but what would you say to uh, people in Florida who are hesitant to get the vaccine? What would you say to them to convince them or at least get them a little step closer to getting the vaccine? Well, first of all, I, I would plead with them. We know that vaccines work. We know that it's stopping the spread of the virus across the entire world. And so what I say to them is, not just do it for yourself, do it for your children, do it for your parents, do it for your grandparents, do it for our economy, do it for the nurses and our first responders that are on the front lines that are putting their lives at risk every single day because you're not getting vaccinated. We know that 95% of the, of the hospitalizations are by those that are not vaccinated. Please, Put yourself into the shoes of those parents that are trying to put their kids back into school. Do right by your neighbors. Do right by your community. Go get vaccinated. Great message to end this conversation on. Nikki Fried, thank you very much for coming to The Readout. Up next, Trump's right-hand man suggests the former president is leading a government in exile with a shadow cabinet. It's all fodder for his conspiratorial followers who think he's going to be reinstalled, which is not a thing, to be clear. Plus, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy jokes about hitting Speaker Pelosi. It's just the latest example of the dangerous rhetoric flowing from the right and the belated effort to prevent the eviction of millions of Americans. There's a lot of talk, but what's really getting done? The readout continues after this.
you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. The big lie is alive and well among Trump's closest advisors, who continue to fuel the delusion that he won the 2020 election, which he didn't. After meeting with the ex-president and others on Friday, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, spoke of him as if he were still in office, referring to it as a, quote, cabinet meeting, like some sort of government in exile. But he's not just providing new fodder to Trump's conspiratorial base. He's also teasing Trump's plan to regain power in 2024. I wanted to, to join you to, to talk about uh, really a president that is fully engaged, highly focused sure. and, and remaining on, on task. Chief, do you want to break any news from your meetings with President Trump? <laughs> well, we met with some of our cabinet members tonight. We're looking at what uh, does come next. I, I'm not uh, authorized to speak on behalf of the president. Okay. But I but I can tell you this, Steve. Uh, we wouldn't be meeting tonight if we weren't making plans to move forward in a real way and with President okay. Trump at the head of that ticket. <laughs> for real people, given that Trump has yet to be held accountable for inspiring a failed coup to hold on to power, it's no surprise that he's now plotting a second act. In fact, the big lie is so insidious within the GOP that it's helped to make Trump the Republican Party's most dominant fundraiser in the first half of 2021. As The New York Times reports, he ended June with a war chest of more than $100 million. It's a reminder that Trump and his party remain a serious threat to our democracy. Joining me now, Democratic strategist Juanita Tolliver and Tim Miller is writer at large at The Bulwark. Both are MSNBC political analysts. Juanita, OK, the idea of Mark <laughs> Meadows talking about Trump as President Trump and our cabinet, and I'm not going to talk about my conversations with the president. What? Look, Jonathan, I just want to shout out the producer who writes your Chiron, emphasizing pretend. Trump is pretend. pretending right now. Meadow is pretending right now. And I appreciate you mentioning that this is just delusional behavior, feeding into that conspiracy theory that Trump has lied to his supporters and said he's coming back to the White House this month. Right. We know that's a lie. But here's where the delusion is dangerous, because we know the last time Trump told his supporters to act Based on one of his lies, they stormed the U.S. Capitol. They killed police officers. They threatened the lives of Pelosi, Pence, staffers, and every employee in that building. And so that's where the delusion is dangerous. But these folks have truly made lying an Olympic sport at this point <laughs> um, because they're not going to stop. And 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 right. I don't. And I want to note that this interview happened on Newsmax, so we know who this was for. 
This was for the base that, as you mentioned, keeps funneling more and more cash into Trump so that not only can Trump go into the 2024 campaign with a strong position, but he's also going to hold this over the GOP's head as to why they can't live without him and why they mm-hmm. absolutely need access to his base. And, and Tim, I would love for you to, to react to what Juanita just said, but also on Mark Meadows. Come on. He's a former member of Congress, North Carolina. He, he one, he should know better. And two, the fact that he knows better and still does these things, says these things. What does that say about him? Well, not much good, Jonathan. I mean, at this point, he's about one step removed from those, uh, you know, Confederate cosplayers uh, that uh, put on the tri-corner hats and like Mm -hmm. go out into the woods in Virginia with the fake rifles and pretend like it's the Civil War. uh, Look, I don't know what happened to Mark Adams. I I mean, look, he was never a moderate Republican, but but, uh, he did seem to be a person who was based in reality uh, before he went into, into the White House. And I think that there's just this intoxicating notion about being close to power as as absurd as that might seem to us i, I you know i'd rather you know rip off my toenails and have to do dinner with the oh. trump family but, <laughs> but for some of these people they love this they love it yeah and so so they go along with all this nonsense in order to do it and, and it has real just i mean this is ridiculous what meadows is doing but it does have mm-hmm. real political impact if you look at the virginia governor's race just today in the bulwark we just put this up glenn youngkin who's the Republican, who in another era might be like a Mitt Romney-style Republican, gets asked about this stuff and, you know, about Trump getting reinstated in August. And he says, well, you know, that's going through the courts and uh, the courts got to deal with it. So, uh, you know, it's not just Meadows playing pretend at Bedminster. It's people who are running for serious office that have to do it as well. And, and, you know, this is all playing. This is all playing out while the Republican Party and members of the Republican Party are trying to make us believe this counter-narrative about January 6th, about trying to turn Ashley Babbitt, not turn her from being the person who was shot because she was trying to gain entry into the Speaker's lobby while members of Congress were being evacuated, uh, but, but turning her into some kind of patriot. She's no patriot trying to make her a martyr. I think this also goes into the argument that they tried to roll out uh, the day of the first select committee hearing, that this is all Pelosi's fault. Somehow, some way, it's all Pelosi's fault, right? And we know that this weak, disjointed narrative that they're putting out is only, again, for a party of one, Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. right? They are still trying to make sure that they stay on their good side, even if what they're saying makes zero sense, even if it lacks logic, even if it lacks judgment. They are still trying to cater to Trump. And that's something that I think we're going to hear more of. Right. They're going to continue to beat that drum of lies throughout the rest of the hearings uh, that the select committee undertakes, Mm -hmm. even when they're even when their own names are going to potentially be called to be subpoenaed to testify in front of that select committee. Um, And so that was a story in The New York Times in The Washington Post. Tim, they have another sort of outrageous thing. This is from Senator Ron Johnson, who suggests that the FBI knew more than it said, basically using the, the attempt to kidnap, the kidnapping plot against Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer as some sort of way of saying, well, the, F- the FBI should have known about that. Therefore, they should have known about January 6th. What I mean, I'm not even going to ask what happened to Ron Johnson. Never mind. Um, <laughs> just why? Why is he still playing court jester on all of this stuff? 
Yeah, look, Ron Johnson is just another one of these cases of all, you know, always crazy or, you know, uh, did something happen over the last few years? Look, that isn't even the most insane thing he's put out over the last 24 hours. You know, just today he tweeted also that he wants people to follow Alex Berenson's Substack. This is one of the, you know, most uh, prolific disinformation uh, provocateurs when it comes to COVID. Uh, On the FBI, Johnson's been like this from the start. You know, he says that he he doesn't understand that he doesn't believe. I think what it comes down to is he doesn't believe at, at its heart that his people that Trump's people could do something like this. I, and that's just it. He said that directly. Uh, he, he believes that Trump's people love America and Bernie Sanders' people don't love America. He believes that at his core. And now he's just trying to backfill that belief with any conspiracy, any fact that might support it. And, and, I, and I, I, you know, without putting him on the couch, uh, you know, I think that's my best explanation for what's happening. <laughs> yeah, and, there's and he's no, going crazier and crazier down the rabbit hole to do yeah, it. There, yeah, Tim, there's no couch big enough to to, to to, ex- to explain him. But uh, in the time that we have left, let's talk about what Ad- uh, Congressman Adam-, Adam Kinzinger said yesterday, where he mm-hmm. d- said that he expects, quote, a significant number of subpoenas um, from the House Select Committee, including possibly uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, and Hamana 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 Jim Jordan. Uh, how likely is that, do you think, um, uh, Juanita? Look, I think it is likely subpoenas are going to be issued. And I think it's also going to continue to grow the rage within the GOP that Kinzinger and Cheney are serving on the select committee and that Kinzinger is out here saying with his whole chest, we're coming for you. If you had anything to do this, we're coming for you to get the answers that we know Americans want. We're coming for you to get to the truth. And so I think it's likely the subpoenas will be issued, Jonathan. What I'm not sure is likely is that these folks will actually appear before the select committee to testify Mm. because we know they're going to fight tooth and nail to avoid going up there um, and having to either plead the fifth uh, or or just just obfuscate the entire time. And so what we know is likely going to happen is these subpoenas are definitely going to be issued. And Kinzinger is asking the question, what are you afraid of? Either you said that this was a normal day at the office and tourists were visiting the Capitol or you had something to do with this and you have some culpability that we'll be finding out. You know, every time I hear plead the fifth, I think of that Dave Chappelle skit. Just Google Dave Chappelle (laughs) fifth, F-I-F. Juanita Tolliver, Tim Miller, thank you very much for coming to the readout. Still ahead, Republican House leader Kevin McCarthy jokes about hitting Speaker Nancy Pelosi with the gavel. Just a joke, right? (laughs) Not funny. Maybe it was coming a few short months after bloodthirsty insurrectionists stormed the Capitol. Funny then or still not funny? It ain't funny. We'll be right back. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is so desperate to become Speaker of the House that he'll stoop to any low to fire up Trump's base. I want you to watch Nancy Pelosi hand me that gown. A spokesman for McCarthy said he was, quote, obviously joking. 
Because it's funny to incite violence against someone who's already a right-wing target. As NBC4 reporter Scott McFarland points out, there are dozens of U.S. Capitol insurrection cases so far in which defendants mention or appear to threaten Nancy Pelosi. The threats, many using misogynistic language, include a call to, quote, hang Pelosi, a warning that the crowd is, quote, coming for her, and a declaration that she is, quote, a traitor. I'm joined now by Ohio Democratic Congressman and Senate candidate Tim Ryan of Ohio. Congressman Ryan, thank you very much for coming to the readout. So was minority leader Kevin McCarthy joking? Well, he's not a very funny guy. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, I, you know, anytime you're trying to, uh, you know, talk about hitting uh, the Speaker of the House with a gavel, you're you're in the wrong uh, but he's just he's not a funny guy. I think he tried to make a joke. He's not very funny. And they're searching for issues to try to incite their base. Uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, you know what he's saying here at that at that dinner. They got to get the focus back on the real issues of what the vast majority of Americans are focused on. That's how do we get wages up? How do we have some economic security for those people who are doing everything right? How do we have retirement security? How do we start really dealing with this economic threat coming out of China and making sure we dominate these industries of the future? Jonathan, they don't want to talk about any of that stuff. They want to talk about all this other nonsense. And I think that's what you that's what you saw the other day. Right. Because, Congressman Ryan, I'm just wondering, you know, what does it say about the tenor and tone of the uh, of your workplace when you've got uh, the leader of the you know the other party joking he's not joking um talking about hitting the speaker with a gavel i mean is since january 6th i've heard many of your colleagues talk about you know just sort of the fear they have about the, their republican colleagues does what leader mccarthy say fit in to that atmosphere of menace that appears to be there in the Capitol. Oh, there's there's no doubt. I mean, you look at you look at the January 6th testimony uh, from from last week. You see that they're completely ignoring the insurrection uh, to the Capitol. They're completely ignoring uh, what happened to members of Congress, what happened to the Capitol Police, what happened happened to Washington Metro Metro. They're looking the other way on all of these issues. And they're so disconnected from reality that jokes like that happen that aren't funny and play into these greater threats that we're seeing from against not just Nancy Pelosi, but many other uh, members of the Democratic caucus. Mm -hmm. And he does. He just feeds into it. But what you're seeing here is a Republican uh, party that is rudderless. They are searching for issues. They're searching for topics to start culture wars on Dr. Seuss or any masks or whatever they could get their hands on. So what mm -hmm. you're seeing uh, is a level of desperation because they're not talking about what's in the best interest of workers uh, so, or the American people. So then, Congressman Ryan, then uh, they might be searching for issues to talk to keep them from talking about real issues. But then but you've got members of Congress who are going out of their way to pal around with far right extremists. You've got Congressman Paul Gosar um, 
who's been associated with the white nationalist Nick Fuentes, which is, according to New York Times, the most vivid example of the Republican Party's growing acceptance of extremism. How should we how worried should we be as Americans that the Republican Party I mean, it's not the Republican Party anymore. It's an extremist party that's perfectly comfortable embracing domestic terrorists. It's I mean, it's something we all should be worried about. I think this is this is a great threat uh, to our democracy. When you have an insurrection, people scaling walls, hitting uh, cops with lead pipes across the side of the head. And the uh, almost the entire Republican Party has looked the other way for that. I just saw where, uh, you know, Congressman Gates and others were calling down to make sure that the insurrectionists were properly treated uh, at the jail they were in. I mean, are you kidding me? This is this is the issue that's most important to you with all of the income inequality, with all of the economic insecurity, high levels of addiction, deaths of despair. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. people losing their shirts, people still, uh, you know, aren't getting vaccinated so we can get the economy back up and running. And you're taking time out of your day to call and make sure that the insurrectionists are getting treated properly. I mean, give me a break. That just shows you how how disconnected they are, Jonathan. Yeah. And to your point about, you know, them visiting insurrectionists, we've gotten a report, a very sad report today um, here from CNBC. Third police officer Gunther Hashida dies from suicide after defending Capitol during riot by pro-Trump mob. Um, I just fixed that headline by domestic terrorists. Um, I'll give you the last word on this. Heartbreaking. I mean, I, I just... You know, I, I chair the committee that funds the Capitol Police. And, uh, you know, we went out of our way to make sure we're trying to take care of those people who, who have taken care of us. We sent, you know, billions of dollars to local communities to make sure that they're funded uh, so that, you know, those people that provide the security in our communities have, have what they need. Uh, and, and these guys are looking the other way. This speaks mm-hmm. to the mental health issues around the country, too, I think. The, uh, the addiction issues around the country. And look, this person put their lives on the line for us to protect the democracy, not just members of Congress. And the Republican Party is completely looking the other way. I hope we can get past this. I hope they can get back into reality. And then we can start talking about how we take care of these police officers. And then we ha- how we start working again to, to get the economy going for all of these these people in the country. That's what the country wants us mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. And our thoughts and prayers go out to uh, Officer Hashida's family. Congressman Tim Ryan, thank you very much for coming to the readout. Still ahead, as the Senate races to pass its one trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure deal, the clock may be running out on millions of Americans facing ev- eviction. Plus, the latest from Tokyo with Simone Biles just hours away from her highly anticipated return to Olympic competition. Stay with us. It's a busy week of unfinished business here in Washington. The federal ban on evictions expired Saturday. Today, President Biden called on state and local governments to put in place moratoriums for at least another two months. And this comes as House Democratic leaders called on the president to extend the moratorium 
And as anger is still palpable among progressive Democrats like Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush, who slept outside on the Capitol steps in protest each of the past three nights. She tweeted that she met with Vice President Harris this afternoon about the need for a federal eviction moratorium. Now, the House is on its seven-week August recess, but members are on notice to return after passage of a long-awaited infrastructure bill in the Senate. That package includes $550 billion in new spending for roads, bridges, and rail, among other things. Now the race is on to pass it before senators leave town. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he urged senators to get moving, while the self-proclaimed grim reaper of legislation, Mitch McConnell, says he's in no rush. Let's start voting on amendments. The longer it takes to finish the bill, the longer we'll be here. Our full consideration of this bill must not be choked off by any artificial timetable that our Democratic colleagues may have penciled out for political purposes. Joining me now, Senator Alex Padilla of California. Senator Padilla, uh, great to see you again. Welcome to The Readout. My question is simple. Which is going to be easier for you and your colleagues to pass, this bipartisan infrastructure bill or the reconciliation bill that um, will require all of the Democrats to vote in favor of it, plus the vote of the vice president to pass it. So, well, good to see you again, Jonathan. And here's the bottom line. It's not an either or. Look, happily supportive of this bipartisan deal, as you mentioned, plenty of money in there, not just for roads and bridges and tunnels, but for uh, the electrical grid. I know in California, uh, every time it's wildfire season, we wonder if we're going to be able to keep the lights on because of uh, the, the status of the electrical grid. There's money in there for broadband deployment to upgrade uh, areas with slow speeds and uh, expand internet service uh, in areas that are currently underserved. But we know that as big and historic as this bipartisan package is, it's not enough. If you need money for housing, for child care, for health care, my God, and so much more, we will follow it up with the reconciliation package, uh, even if it has to be uh, on a partisan basis. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about, um, you mentioned housing, so let's talk about um, eviction. The, you, have, you have Congresswoman Cori Bush sleeping on the steps of the Capitol. Congress, uh, the House left town without doing anything about um, you know, expand, extending the, the uh, moratorium on evictions. Is there anything Congress can do in time to protect American families? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, applying pressure in all the right places, right? Uh, we acted earlier this year to provide state and local governments enough funding uh, to cover these eviction moratoriums. In California, it's been extended till uh, September. We certainly hope we're uh, in a much better place when it comes to the pandemic, when it comes to the economy uh, by then, but at least Californians have that uh, comfort level. Uh, I think people across the country should uh, uh, enjoy the same protections. Uh, and if it means the CDC has to act, look, the, the public health professionals at the CDC, you know, I listen to every doctor when they take their oath becoming a medical professional, the first rule is do no harm. Mm -hmm. So that means during a pandemic, do not kick people out of their homes and do not put them on the streets. Uh, last issue for you, cramming in a, a lot of news with you, Senator Padilla, and you seem to be the hub of all of these things, voting rights. You are a part of this crew of senators who are working on a pared-down version of a voting rights bill that you hope can um, uh, get passed out of the Senate. Can you give us any more details on what's in it and when you're going to drop it? 
Yeah, look, uh, ideally we'd uh, unveil some new language this week. We're still fine-tuning uh, the newest proposal as we're trying to finalize uh, this infrastructure package. Uh, the For the People Act, which I'm absolutely supportive of, clearly it was, was tough to get through just to open up debate and discussion. Uh, so if we were able to focus on just the more important pieces of voting rights access to the ballot, uh, and we already start with a united Democratic caucus, then I think we're one step closer to either getting the votes necessary on the floor or maybe finally uh, rattling the, the filibuster rule to get this done for the sake of our democracy. The 2022 election is right around the corner. Mm -hmm. Senator Alex Padilla of California, thank you, as always, for coming to the readout. Just days before the 56th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act being signed into law, protesters gathered in front of the Hart Senate office building earlier today, calling for protection of voting rights and the abolition of the filibuster. Now, while the protest was peaceful, more than 200 were arrested, including my next guest, Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, which organized today's protest. Bishop Barber, great to see you. I talked to you on Saturday when you were in Austin, Texas. Today, you are here in Washington, still fighting for voting rights. Do you think Washington has the, has the same level of urgency as you do when it comes to protecting voting rights? Well, not yet they don't, Jonathan, but the pressure is showing that they're moving. They weren't moving at all. We marched on Manchin. He came out with the compromise. We're moving now. We had poor and low-wage workers from 47 states plus religious leaders. That's who was marching today, the essential workers and religious leaders, moral leaders, because this is a moral issue, a constitutional issue, not just—and it wasn't just about the Voting Rights Act. It was about in that filibuster— Pass the full provisions of the For the People's Act. We don't need to narrow down anything. We don't narrow down the provisions for the Chamber of Commerce. We need to pass the Voting Rights Act restoration when it's ready. We need to pass $15 living wage for the 32 million people who live every day, essential workers who save this economy, uh, 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 restaurant workers who make $2.13 an hour. That's, that's ridiculous. We need to protect our immigrants, and we need to ensure that people are not evicted. We mm -hmm. try, we've got trying to evict the vote and evict people. So we've got to change this dynamic. If they don't do it by the six, we're going to intensify even more. But we're not going anywhere, Jonathan. So, Bishop Barber, we just had Senator Alex Padilla of California on. He's part of the working group um, that is going to unveil a, a new voting rights legislation. It most likely won't have all of the things that were in the voting the, the For the People Act all of the things that you want, are you saying that if that bill doesn't have all of the things that you want, you won't support it? Well, let's talk about all the things that John Lewis wanted. Let, let's see, what are you going to cut out of it? You're going to cut out ballot access? That's in there. Are you going to cut out uh, getting rid of dark money? That's in there. Are you going to cut out dealing with gerrymandering? That's in there. Are you going to cut out ethics? You see, what you're happening is Manchin is being allowed to negotiate the bill down. What senators should be saying is, Manchin, there are things you want in this infrastructure bill. There are things you want for West Virginia. Seventy-nine percent of the people in West Virginia particularly uh, agree with the For the People's Act, as John Lewis wrote it. So we're not going to move on infrastructure until that. 
the president should go to Arizona, should go to Texas, should go to, to West Virginia. The president needs to meet with, as he promised, with a group of religious leaders that are very diverse, poor and low wealth workers, economists and voting rights lawyers all in the same room. His staff has been blocking this. They've been saying, well, we got to wait to infrastructure. But the president said to us he wanted to work with us. Let's put pressure on first, but don't negotiate away what's promised in the 15th Amendment of the Constitution. Why is it that poor and low wealth people and people needing their voting rights and living wages have to have things negotiated away? But when a corporation comes, they get everything. They, they ask for trillions and they get trillions. See, we got to change the moral mindset, Jonathan, of our, of our whole way of working. We ask the people who give the most to compromise the most and the folk who give the least to get the most. That's ridiculous. So we're going to we haven't seen the language. Let's look at it. But I can tell you what four parts are you going to take out? Access to the ballot, ethics, dealing with gerrymandering and addressing this issue of dark money, which treats corporations like people and people like things. I don't know which part of you can take out and it be what John Lewis really wanted. He wrote it. That's what people should be trying to keep in what he wrote. And with that, we're going to leave it right there. Bishop William Barber, thank you very much, as always, for coming to the readout. Up next, Olympian Simone Biles will be back on the balance beam after missing most of her Olympic events. That's next. Stay with us. The second week of the Summer Olympics is underway in Tokyo. U.S. superstar gymnast Simone Biles will make her return to competition tomorrow in the balance beam final after withdrawing from her other events to focus on her mental health. And today, New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard made history as the first out transgender woman to compete in the Games. Meanwhile, the weekend brought some of the first demonstrations of the Games, Members of the U.S. men's fencing team wore pink masks in support of sexual assault victims protesting a teammate accused of sexual misconduct. And on Sunday, Raven Saunders raised her hands in an X formation above her head as she took the silver in the women's shot put. She later explained the gesture represented unity with oppressed people. The U.S. Olympic Committee issued a statement of support for Saunders, saying her gesture was respectful and did not violate its rules on demonstrations. And that's the readout tonight. Stay with MSNBC tonight. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who testified in the first impeachment trial against former President Donald Trump about his phone call with the president of Ukraine, joins The Rachel Maddow Show live at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight on MSNBC. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.